0: We've talked about uh, context. Then, uh, two weeks ago, we talked about uh, authorial intent, uh, the main point uh, in the gospel and biblical theology in the text that we're reading. Last week, we talked about why the original languages matter from Jacob. And this week, uh, we're going to walk through the tools for studying Scripture. So, you know, before we get into that, I actually want to pray, uh, and then we'll launch into the lesson. Father, Lord, we thank you uh, just for the opportunity to to come and to consider your word and to think about how we might uh, just spend more time meditating uh, and meditating deeper on your word and delighting in your word. God, I pray that you would bless this time this morning, um, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see um, the truths of your word that we'll talk about. God, I pray that you would give us all. A greater desire uh, and inclination to the things of God and the things in your word, Lord, and a desire to to go deeper and spend more time with you. Christ's name. Amen. Uh, So, this morning we're going to talk through a number of tools that fall through different categories. Um, And before we get to the different groupings that you'll see there on your handout, what are some of your favorite tools that you've used? Um, as you've studied scripture, things that you've referenced that have been helpful. Commentaries. commentaries? Yeah, I love commentaries, very helpful. We'll get into that this morning. What else? Study Bibles? Absolutely. Tons of great resources and study Bibles. I've got an ESV at home myself. Bible dictionaries, Bible dictionaries. yep. Very helpful. We'll talk about those as well. Anything else? If you wanted to cheat, you could look at the handout. Be like, oh, "Do I have any of these?" <laughs> it's too big. That's right. Well, we'll get into a lot. Maybe you'll find some new favorites this morning. Uh, but the first group of tools that we're gonna to reference here no pun intending, is uh, reference tools, right? So they're (laughs) the first thing on your handout. Uh, And I'm going to note here at the beginning, Christian uh, absolutely helped a lot with helping me get a sense of the groupings of these words. So I'm drawing a lot from his resources. So the first reference tool that we're going to look at is the concordance. So concordance is really a simple index uh, that provides a list of words in the Bible and then shows all the uses of that word in Scripture. So generally, a concordance uh, will list a word, and then underneath that word, there'll be a list of all the verses in the Bible with that word next to it, uh, with a snapshot of the text that surrounds that word in a particular verse. So if you look at the projector behind me, you'll see, you know, joy, and then all of these verses here, referencing the word joy, (laughs) oh gosh, with with the, the snapshot of the text in that particular verse. Explosive. So, so an example of, of why you would use a concordance, um, you know, a great, a great reason to use a concordance would be to do a word study in Scripture. So for instance, if you wanted to get a better sense of what the word righteousness means in the Bible, you'd grab a concordance, uh, you can flip to the word righteousness uh, in the index and then start to read each verse in the index that contains the word righteousness. Uh, as you read each verse, you would try to get a sense of the context around, you know, not just reading the, the specific verse itself, but read a couple of verses before and behind. Um, and as you do so, write out your observations about, that, about what that verse teaches you uh, about how the author is using the word righteousness, and as you keep reading more verses, you'll keep writing out more observations of the similarities of the use of that term uh, with the other verses that you've read, as well as what further nuances or clarifications uh, that the each new successive verse is adding to the sense of that word. Um, and as you continue to read, you'll start to get a sense of the range. Of possible meanings that this word can be used. Uh, and so the goal would be to come to a fully orbed definition that you can write out that encompasses sort of that range of meaning that you're seeing all into one sentence about righteousness. So that can be one of the more fruitful ways uh, of using a concordance. And I will I will note um, I don't know that many people use concordances, like physical concordances anymore. Uh, because they've often been replaced by the search function in like a Bible app that will list out very similarly. Um, so if you're more used to using electronic version, search function will do the same thing. Uh, but both may be used fruitfully. So the next tool uh, in reference tools that we'll speak of here is Bible dictionaries. And we noted this one earlier. Uh, Bible dictionary is it's very similar to a normal dictionary, uh, except that its focus is specifically words in scripture so it, it a bible dictionary will list out uh, every unique word found in scripture uh... and then show what hebrew greek or aramaic word lies behind it it'll then provide a definition of that word from the o- original language and it will also provide uh... historical context uh, and the background for the use of that word and at times uh, it, it will connect that word or name with key verses related to it, so you get a better sense of where you can find it in Scripture. And interestingly, um, you know, one thing that you'll find a lot in Bible dictionaries is the meaning of names um, as you're reading through a text. And names are very significant if you haven't picked up on that in Scripture. So for an example of how this might be used, uh, can someone read Genesis 17, uh, chapter 17, chapter 17, Verses 15 through 19. Excellent. Thanks so much. So the context of this passage, you, you know, just before this, God has promised uh, to make Abraham the father of many nations, to multiply his family, uh, give them land uh, to possess, as part of this everlasting covenant, right, that we heard in that verse. And part of this promise is that God is going to give uh, Abraham and Sarah a, a son uh, that they're to name Isaac. So. With that in mind, let's take a look at how Sarah responds to hearing this promise uh, that God told Abraham. So if someone can read Genesis 18, uh, verses 9 through 15. And as you read, look for uh, a repeated word that you see coming up here. Uh, so, so, any word that you pick up on here, uh, a repetition that you're seeing, laugh. laugh. Yes, laugh. So, you know, maybe, maybe there's a reason why uh, God told Abram and Sarah to name their son Isaac. Maybe there's something going on here. And if we were to look up the name Isaac in something like Easton's Bible Dictionary, what you would find is that the, the name Isaac means laughter, ultimately. So this name was intentionally chosen to serve as a constant reminder to Abraham, who also laughed when he heard in chapter 17, and Sarah, both of their incredulity to God and what he could do uh, in his promise, but also to the joy that God was giving them and by giving them this son. So Isaac, laughter, was serving as that constant reminder. Side note, I love the, uh, I love the verse there where uh, uh, God, or the three people, approach uh, Sarah and, uh, you know, God God says, why did you laugh, Sarah? She says, no, I didn't laugh. And God goes, no, but you did laugh. I love that. Um, Another example where you might use a Bible dictionary uh, would be the word that Jacob referenced last week, you know, when he asked. How many times in the last month have you used the word uh, propitiation, just in normal conversation? Well, you know, propitiation uh, is one of those words that um, can be difficult to understand at first glance. We don't run across it all that often. Um, But again, Bible dictionaries can be very useful in those cases. So if we were to look up propitiation uh, in Easton's Bible dictionary, we find this definition. That was Isaac. Disregard that. Propitiation is that by which God is rendered propitious, i.e., by which it becomes consistent with his character and government to pardon and bless the sinner. The propitiation does not procure love or make him loving. It only renders it consistent for him to exercise his love towards sinners. So he goes on and gives an example. In 1 John uh, chapter 2, verse 2, and chapter 4, verse 10, Christ is called the propitiation for our sins. Here a Greek word is used, elasemos, Christ is the propitiation because by his becoming a substitute and assuming our obligations, he expiated our guilt, covered it by the vicarious uh, punishment which he endured. So granted, that's kind of technical, right? And it may take a few moments to grasp exactly what Easton is saying here, but But as we do and we think a little bit more about it, we start to get more of a sense of of what the word propitiation means nonetheless. So, a propitiation is essentially a sacrifice that makes it possible for God to forgive our sins while still punishing them. Uh, That's what a propitiation is. So, here we see how helpful a Bible dictionary can be. Um, The word propitiation is actually a very central word um, that's used by the New Testament authors for understanding. Uh, the gospel. And it, it's a word that's essentially answering the question, how can God be just while also forgiving sinners? That Those two things seem to be in conflict. But the answer uh, that the New Testament writers give is by putting forth Christ as a propitiation. Right? And again, a propitiation is it's the kind of sacrifice that makes it possible for God to forgive sins while still punishing them. Right? The Bible Dictionary has really helped us to unpack that meaning there. And even that definition can give us, you know, hours of fruitful meditation to just really think, like, is that the way that I think about the gospel, right? Like, am I actually concerned with whether or not God can be just in forgiving sinners, or am I more concerned just about sort of my self-interest, right? But this was a central concern for someone like Paul, right? His his main concern was, how can God still be good if he forgives me, not you know, how can, I, how can I make sure that my future is secured ultimately? Just an interesting interesting thing to meditate on. One caution uh, with Bible dictionaries is that words won't always mean the same thing in every context. Uh, so all words will have a restricted range of meanings like we talked about early, earlier. But, but sometimes just looking up a word in the dictionary isn't necessarily going to tell you um, how a particular author is using that particular word each time. Uh, so, example would be um, John two uh, nineteen, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. Um, Jesus says, "Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up." So, if you were to look up the phrase "temple" uh, in something like the Lexham Bible Dictionary, you'd be given a description of the physical temple in Israel. You you get a sense of the layout, uh, the architecture, the, its purpose in society in Israel, and the, so, the historical process around the building itself, right? The construction, the destruction, the rebuilding uh, throughout the nation of Israel, among other things. But if we only looked at the dictionary definition there, uh, we'd be making the same mistake that the Pharisees made when they heard Jesus say that, right? He, Jesus wasn't referring to the physical temple. He was referring to the temple of his body, which John adds, uh, later, But it's, it's important that we recognize uh, we, we need to, to take the author's uh, terms in context um, and consider the different possible meanings that, that this, this word could be uh, bringing up. And a good Bible dictionary will actually provide some of those different ways uh, alongside those words. All right, last reference tool is cross-references. So you're probably familiar with cross-references in the Bible. Uh, if you have a study Bible, uh, whenever you read your Bible and you see those small letters that are sort of randomly interspersed above words uh, in in the text, um, you're, you're seeing an example of a cross-reference. So those letters that are above the words are then linked to the same letter in the margin of your Bibles. And there in the margin, your Bible is going to provide Uh, one or sometimes a few different verses uh, that also contain the same or or similar concepts or ideas elsewhere in Scripture. That's why they're called cross-references. So these markers show reference points to other parts of Scripture that are closely tied to those same ideas uh, in the verse that you're reading. And these these references can be really useful um, in linking things together like the typology of Scripture or essentially how um, prophecy is being fulfilled. Um, A lot of times, you know, you read the the Gospel of Matthew, he'll use the refrain, um, thus it was fulfilled, and then say a verse. Uh, The cross-reference will provide the verse. A lot of times Matthew won't actually say, thus it was fulfilled in Isaiah, fifty-one. you know, whatever. Uh, But the cross-reference will give you that reference. Um, Another example of where you might be helped by cross-reference is in uh, John 3. Uh, Verses 13 through 14. So in this passage, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, the Pharisee, and explaining to him that he must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, and so Nicodemus here is understandably really confused, thinking that Jesus is saying that he needs to be physically born again, um, you know, enter back into his mother's womb. Jesus clarifies and explains that he's speaking of a spiritual kind of birth that's necessary. Uh, But Nicodemus is still confounded and can't really grasp what what Jesus is getting at. So with great mercy, uh, Jesus keeps explaining in John 3, verses 13 through 14. So can someone read those two verses, John 3, uh, verses 13 through 14? All right, so here Jesus is making an explicit reference to the Old Testament. What's the reference? Yeah, yeah. He's yep. So Moses is lifting up, li- Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, ultimately, right? He's, that's what he's pointing back to. And it's, it would be easy to just kind of gloss over those words and, you know, think, oh, that's an interesting statement Jesus made. But if we, if we do just gloss over them in this context, we're actually missing out on something incredibly important that Jesus is meaning to communicate about how the new birth works uh, to Nicodemus. So if, if anyone has a study Bible um, that does have those cross-references, uh, what passage in the Old Testament does your cross-reference uh, in the margin link verse 14 back to? Yep, Numbers 21.9. So if we were to turn back to that passage, we'd see you know the Israelites are in the wilderness with Moses. Uh, they begin to grumble and complain about how God has led them out of uh, Israel, or sorry, out of Egypt, out of slavery, but into the desert. Um, start to question God's goodness uh, in doing so. God becomes uh, angry and sends out fiery stinks that bite many people, uh, and they start to cry out to God. And then God tells Moses to, to make a bronze serpent, to lift it up on a pole so that everyone who looks on it will be healed and will be given life. And so without using uh, the cross-reference, we're, we're going to fail to see uh, a great example, you know, first of how Scripture points to Christ. Right? So here in this seemingly random passage in the Old Testament uh, we're, we're th- about the Israelites looking to a snake on a pole, we find a really vivid picture that foreshadows uh, what Christ would be and who He would be for us. Uh, Cross references kind of will ultimately help you to read your Bible better as you go back and forth and see how um, Scripture is interpreting Scripture. But when reading the Numbers passage, you know, back in the Old Testament, without knowing the context uh, with Jesus, you you might be tempted to think, you know, "What a random thing that Moses just randomly decided." I should record this event for all of human history to read for, you know, from now on. What, a random, like, what is that? What, what's going on here? Right? But w- with the passage in John 3, if you, if you don't have this passage in Numbers, you may miss out on, like I mentioned earlier, uh, how the new birth works. Right? So it doesn't just randomly hit us one day apart from faith, apart from faith in Christ. It's not like we're walking around the park and, like, thinking about ice cream and like, basketball and butterflies. And then out of nowhere, we're just flooded with spiritual life. And it's just like, whoa, like, okay, I'm a Christian now. That's not exactly how it works. Instead, it happens as we were thinking and we're recognizing our sin and we we, we look to the crucified Christ. That's where the new birth takes place. And it, it shows that... Uh, the, the kind of faith that we have isn't just like, again, mental ascent. It's not just saying, yes, that's true. It's, it's a desperate kind of faith. So just as the Israelites were dying more and more each moment uh, from the snake bite, they were completely hopeless unless they looked to the serpent on the pole. So we must also come to see our desperate state, right? And, and the desperate state of sin that we're in, and look to the only hope we have, which is Christ on the cross. And, and as we look to him, the poison of sin that's in us is dealt with, and we are given new life. So by following the trail of the cross reference that this has led us back to, we come to see a much fuller understanding of what Jesus is actually teaching Nicodemus. Nicodemus would have uh, a base understanding of this passage and would be gathering these details as Jesus references numbers. Just an aside, um, something that you might do in your own time with this cross-reference is think about the significance of uh, snakes and serpents here. Like why was it a serpent that was on the pole? You know, think about like Genesis 3, there's a serpent in the garden. Why, why is the serpent on the pole? Food for thought for later. One thing I want to point out here, um, here is a, a picture that visually depicts all of the cross-references in the Bible. So this is every single cross-reference that exists. By far, the most, as Jacob used the word last week, intertextual book in all of human history. And there's for good reason. You know, you see the level of depth in the way that scripture builds upon scripture. Uh, and some might even say that this is nothing short of supernatural. I think that uh, that's pretty good, pretty good evidence there. So scripture interprets scripture, and cross-references can really help you to see that. So now we're going to move on to our second group of tools, uh, the language study tools. Um, The first uh, tool in this group would be a lexicon. So a a Bible lexicon is an in-depth dictionary of Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic words found in the Bible, um, and, and specifically those, those uh, words in their original languages, not like a Bible dictionary that's linking the um, English with the, the Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. Um, they'll provide you with a definition behind you know, some of those linked words in English when you're reading the original language. Um, and it will give you the part of speech that the word is used in. So, you know, for example, the subject, the verb, adjective, so on. And they'll also give you uh, the etymology of the word, or the origin of the word and how it's developed over time. Um, they'll also tend to show you uh, some other ways that the word can be used to, again, give you a sense of the range of meaning that the author can be, can be employing in any given situation. So in terms of, of usage, um, I owe Jacob a lot on this one. He helped me think of this one last night. Let's say you're reading Philippians 2, right? Uh, And can someone actually, someone with an ESV Bible, particularly, can you read Philippians 2, verses 1 through 2? Excellent. Thank you. So, so as you're reading that, you might think to yourself like, okay, that's weird. I wonder why Paul is saying the same thing twice in the same verse, right? Look in, look in verse two, being of the same mind, having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Okay. What's, what's up with the repetition there? So This is an example of a point where you might start to think to yourself, you know, is there something in the original Greek word behind this English word, mind, that might help me understand why Paul is saying the same thing twice? Or, you know, you might even ask, will the Greek word behind that word, mind, help me to understand what it actually means to be of one mind? So you go to your lexicon, in this case, Blue Letter Bible, like we saw last week, and you pull up Philippians two two. Let's see, um, and and, as, and you see that the Greek word for mind here uh, in both places in this verse is is the same. It's this word phroneo. You can see right here. So uh, you look up the word phroneo. And in the first place, it might, it might make sense to see that the word freneo can be translated as, you know, being of one mind. And you'll see that here in letter C, this option, to be of the same mind, i.e. agreed together, cherish the same views, be harmonious. Okay, so that's, that makes sense as, you know, one of the choices that the translators have used here. In the second time this, the word is used, it may, may be helpful to look at the other possibilities in the range of meaning here. So uh, if we look at the third possible usage of this word, we see that forneo" can also be translated uh, to direct one's mind to a thing, to seek, to strive for there in the third point. So in this sense, the second use of the word mind could be replaced with the phrase um, seeking the same thing, right? Um, So if you put that all together, we could render this verse something like this. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and seeking the same thing. Right? Uh, Does someone happen to have a CSB Bible here? Okay. Can you read the same passage, uh, Philippians 2, 1 through 2 in the CSB? go so there you see thinking the same thing and then intent on one purpose for those two uses of the word mind Uh, so Paul appears to be saying something very similar both times Uh, we see that he's using the same Greek word phreneo but the lexicon is helping us see that he could be using the same term in slightly different terms but in but in uh, sorry slightly different ways but in complementary ways right So the point here is that a lexicon can be really helpful to unpack points of scripture that may, at first glance, appear somewhat unclear to us. The next language tool uh, we're going to talk about is the interlinear Bible. Um, And it's it's actually very similar to a lexicon. Um, But an interlinear Bible, it's, it's similar except that instead of breaking out each Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic word found in the Bible, and laying out all those words alphabetically. Um, what what a, an interlinear Bible will do is display a line of words in English, and then directly below the English, it'll display the Hebrew or Greek words behind each of the English, English words and the line above. So this will be an example of that. So in this way, interlinear Bibles provide a great opportunity to deeply study a passage And can help you see repetitions uh, in Greek or Hebrew words that, you know, may not have always been translated into the same word by the the translators. So in terms of usage, you may remember how Jacob um, used an interlinear Bible last week on Blue Letter Bible. Um, Jacob showed that, you know, if you look at the Hebrew words behind Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, uh, you actually see that there is the same word haggah used uh, in Psalm 1 verse 2. Uh, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates haggah day and night. As well as that same word being picked up in Psalm 2. Why are the nations in uproar and the peoples devising haggah in vain? Right? So the interlinear Bible is, is showing us this now. When When we recognize that it's the same word in Hebrew, we realize that uh, the people plotting against God could actually be translated uh, sort of meditating against God. So in that sense, Psalm 1 and 2 are connected in that they display the difference between the meditation of the righteous uh, with the meditation of the wicked. But again, the interlinear Bible is, is what sort of helped us to see that. We wouldn't have seen that otherwise. The third tool uh, in this group is Bible commentaries. Uh, and this is, uh, a, sorry, a new group, context tools. Uh, but Bible Bible commentaries, we referenced them earlier, very helpful. Uh, they can provide a lot of benefits to us as we're seeking to study Scripture. Uh, and one of the main benefits would be that they help us to avoid the error of our personal interpretation in isolation. Right? So... About three years ago, uh, my parents were looking for a new church back home in, in Texas, and they'd been to a few different churches, uh, but hadn't really found the right one. So one weekend, Anna and I uh, went back home to visit them and to uh, go to visit a small community church uh, that was really near their house. So the pastor there seemed kind, and the you know, congregation was very nice and friendly, and we you know, liked what we were seeing. And then uh, the pastor got up to preach, and the sermon was on Romans 11, uh, verses 25 through 26. And in this passage, Paul's explaining how God's purposes uh, of redemption didn't fail because the majority of Jews at that time, uh, the people of Israel, weren't being saved. So you know, Paul and these other Jews might be tempted to look around and say, oh, well, God didn't fulfill his promises because Israel is not being saved here. But Paul explains that this was all part of the wisdom of God's plan because God had hardened the Jews from believing in Christ for a time until, quote, the fullness of the Gentiles came in, end quote. And then presumably after that time, uh, their, their hardening were, will, would be removed. And then Paul goes on to say, uh, and all Israel will be saved, right? So, the pastor is reading through this text and he pauses at that point and he says, You know, I've, I've been thinking about this a lot and I haven't really heard anyone say this, uh, but I think that what Paul's saying as I've been thinking about it is, you know, I think there are two ways of salvation. I think that for Gentiles, salvation is through faith in Christ, but for Jews, I think that God's going to find a way. For all Jews, past, present, future, uh, to be saved, you know, even, even though they didn't have faith in Christ. And, you know, I hope that as you hear that, you I don't have to explain very much as to why that's wrong. Uh, you know, maybe one verse will suffice. John fourteen six. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, so we have, to, we have to take that into uh, consideration as we think about these things. And there are not two ways of salvation. There's only one way, and that's through faith in Christ. So if you, if you ever have to use the phrase, or if you ever hear the phrase, I've never heard anyone say this, but, right, you should be skeptical. There, there have been a host of believers, uh, uh, literally millennia of believers that have come before us, in the church, and truth doesn't change over time, right? We should really question, if no one else has said this, especially people who are faithful and orthodox, maybe maybe I'm not understanding it correctly, rather than, you know, everyone else has been wrong this whole time and I'm the one that figured it out. So we should have a healthy skepticism to those claims. That's that's one benefit, avoiding the error of, of personal interpretation in a vacuum. Commentaries help to provide uh, feedback to us. If this pastor would have read a commentary or multiple commentaries by faithful writers, he may have uh, paused and maybe second-guessed teaching this in front of a congregation. Um, another benefit in using commentaries is that they can help you feel more confirmation uh, in the way that you're using and in interpreting a text. So. Often there are times when you're reading a passage uh, and you you feel fairly confident um, that an author means to say a particular thing. Um, But reading a few different commentaries and seeing that others are picking up on the same thing from the biblical author that you are can really help to confirm to you that you're on the right track. Commentaries uh, also can teach you how to read better over time. So if you're willing to stick with couple commentators uh, for a while it can be helpful to read through a commentary uh, of an entire book you know this seems this maybe seems daunting uh, but maybe choose a smaller book and, and and look at how the Bible commentator wrestles with certain verses uh, and the way that they link verses and ideas together that can be really instructive for us to, to sort of know what the process looks like in our own approach. So it's often said that good hermeneutics is caught, it's not taught. So sometimes the best way to become a good reader is to watch and to imitate other good readers in their commentator, in their commentaries. But a couple of words of caution uh, when using commentaries. Uh, it's important to read through a passage yourself first and to try to come to your own conclusions uh, on what you think an author means to communicate to an audience. There's a danger in reading a common commentary too quickly uh, and sh- then short circuiting uh, your learning process. So, if you read someone else's comments on a passage too soon and too quickly, you risk immediately adopting their opinion on the thing uh, before you ever form your own. And it can be really hard to unsee what someone else has said on a passage if you hadn't read it yourself first. Uh, and, and one of the dangers there is that sometimes comment, commentators can be wrong, right? Or they can miss very key things in the text. Uh, so it's important to use commentaries as guides, and not necessarily as 100% accurate expert opinion that can't possibly be wrong. And, you know, uh, I, it's also important to read, you know, more than one, to read two or more, uh, as you're thinking about you know, how others are viewing a passage. Uh, and, and I would uh, absolutely say read two or more um, vetted commentators, those that are come recommended to you as faithful guides and expositors of Scripture. You know, D.A. Carson uh, would be a great example of someone who is prolific in writing commentaries uh, but is generally a very faithful biblical commentator. At UBC, our ABF teachers uh, usually reference the Pillar New Testament commentary series as well as the Tyndale uh, New Testament commentary series. And uh, this one comes from Scott Belinsky. The Preaching the Word commentary series would also be a great resource. Again, there there will be points where as you're reading through commentaries and, and referencing them in your own study, uh, you're not necessarily going to agree 100% uh, with someone else's reading of scripture, but but they can be very helpful in in confirming or sharpening your own approach um, to help strengthen your own grasp and ability to read scripture. The next tool uh, in these context tools is book introductions. So if you have a study Bible, you're probably familiar with you know book introduction. Oftentimes study Bibles will include, these introductions before the first chapter of whatever book you're in and uh... in general they provide an overview of who wrote the book uh... the setting in which the book is written and sometimes they'll explain the context uh, of the audience who first received the book as well as the background for the author some will even provide some key historical events uh... that took place around the time that the book was spent, so they may even, um, you know, underneath all of that, provide context uh, in the form of maps, right? Just geographically, so you know where, uh, where in modern day countries uh, this thing took place. For better reference, you also find, you know, a short summary of the key ideas and themes that are found in the book, as well as, an, like sometimes an outline with sort of. Uh, bulleted points of the flow of an author's thought. So, if you if you were to want to find you know some of these introductions, let's say you don't have a study Bible, but you still want to see uh, and read a few of these, you would just go to Google, type in you know ESV introduction and then whatever book of the Bible, and uh, you'll you'll find uh, very quickly on those search results that ESV has all of their. Bible introductions on their website for free, laid out for you. Another word of caution, similar to uh, commentaries. Be careful not to default to introductions too quickly. So in general, I think it's it's better to try to read through the book yourself in one sitting and then try to find for yourself uh, who the author is, uh, who the audience is, and, and then to try to come up with one or two Key themes that you see as very central and important to the message of the book. And if you wanted to get really advanced, you can maybe even try to sketch out your own outline of points and how the book is laid out. Then you can go to the book introduction and compare notes. Right? When, when you approach uh, book introductions like this, you avoid, again, short-circuiting the learning process. Learning is, is hard. It, it can take work for sure. Uh, but it's way too easy to read one scholar's book intro and, you know, let's say that you're reading Philippians, you read a book introduction, the author says that the main, uh, the main theme of Philippians is unity, right? And it's way too easy to read that and read then, from then on read through Philippians only looking for unity, right? Sometimes when you approach a book with a fresh set of eyes, you're able to see sometimes more, uh, than others have seen, uh, that have, you know, written these introductions. Um, and while, while, it you know, maybe you come to the same central theme that they do, maybe along the way you're also picking up smaller themes as you're considering, are there alternatives um, to unity? Or, you know, could joy in the gospel, et cetera, be central to the book? Um so again, for your own learning process, I think it's, it's important to attempt to reconstruct for yourself um, the overview of the book. Who, what, when, where, why. And then go back, read the intro, and you'll have a much better frame of reference um, as, you, as you hear these things. And you'll actually probably end up getting more out of the additional insights that you didn't see uh, that the, the introduction is providing. That's going to set you up much better in the long run. To learn how to handle the word effectively, uh, and to really uh, get a sense of how the uh, how biblical authors set up their arguments, set up their flow of thought in books. All right, so now we are going to move on to electronic study tools. So we I don't know that we've referenced this tool yet uh, in this class, uh, but Logos is an electronic uh, Bible study app uh, that I find really beneficial, and you know, one of the main benefits of Logos is that it contains all of the tools that we've talked about today, all in one place, all very easily accessible and searchable. So you know, the main benefit there is that you have all these resources uh, immediately available. And when you think about it, we've we've already co- covered so many. Of these resources. And if you consider that each resource we've talked about, you know, is potentially its own separate book in your library, and that each time you have a question about, you know, meaning of a word, or what John Calvin, or, you know, Don Carson said about a particular verse, uh, or maybe you're looking for more background or historical context to whatever chapter you're in. Well then each time you have those questions, you'll have to stop what you're doing, you know, open up the book, and then depending on uh, the kind of tool, maybe you have to flip to the table of contents or the index to locate where that word or that verse is in the actual book itself. Uh, and then finally, you, you can turn to the right page and locate it on the page. Well, with Logos, the process is much faster. Right? You can immediately search for a word, or a verse, and then all of your resources uh, will will come up for that. So in this case, uh, Philippians 2, I highlighted the phrase uh, mind. I actually, golly, there it is again. Uh, I highlighted the phrase mind, and then I looked it up. And that pulled up all of my resources on this particular verse, and immediately went to a commentary that I have uh, from John Calvin, on Philippians 2. Right there. Took like two seconds. So, uh, you know, I, w- I want to be clear there's nothing wrong with books, right? Uh, I, I love books. I, I have a library myself. Uh, but with Logos, the process is just much faster. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll give another example here. If, if I were to look up the word mind, uh, I can then pull up a lexicon, right? That shows me that same word for neo immediately in a lexicon, but I still have in another tab my commentary pulled up. So I can just flip back and forth and continue to study without needing to cross-reference and look everything up. So again, I love books. Some people are always going to prefer the physical, you know, tangible process of flipping through a book. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just just some food for thought. It's an option for you, uh, as you study. Some some of us are what? Some of us are just old. Exactly. Jacob is incredibly old. That's true. Um, so, you know, I hate to say this because it sounds like a sales pitch. I to be straight, I have no stake in, with Logos. Right? I'm not a sales rep. I don't. I don't like. I don't know anybody there. But right now, you can get Logos for free. And, and you can get John Calvin's entire collection of commentaries for 50 bucks. For context, I, I bought the same thing on Logos for $200 a year ago. It's actually a really good deal. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. you look into it. That's right. Use, use this link. I'll send it to you afterwards. No. No. Yes. Perfect. Yes. For the low, low price of ten thousand eight hundred, right? I mean, to be fair, the amount of resources that you get—it's kind of insane for the price. But I don't know if anybody else has ten thousand eight hundred dollars lying around. I certainly don't. With that said. Logos, check it out. It's a good tool. The next one I want to talk about uh, is Bible Arc. Bible Arc. So, Bible Arc is an online tool that is a little bit more in depth uh, in the process of studying Scripture. But it's it's actually incredibly helpful if you're willing to devote uh, the time to learn how to use it. So, if you're interested in growing your ability uh to study a passage and to come specifically to find the main point that an author is communicating you're really going to love this tool in fact brad uh uses this tool whenever he preaches through paul's letters okay there's a plug for you bear with me uh as i talk through it rec- i recognize this is going to get technical for a second um, it'll be okay it won't last long but you may be interested so essentially bible arc is a tool that lets you break up a passage into propositions. So a proposition is basically the smallest unit of thought uh, that expresses a single idea. Uh, Sometimes there can be multiple propositions in one verse, but each proposition will only have one verb, generally speaking. There's one exception to that. We're not going to get into it. Uh, Each... uh, Uh, Yeah, so a passage is usually made up of many propositions that are related together, and they're related together specifically through a series uh, and groupings of logical relationships. Um, So here's an example of Psalm 1 that is broken up into propositions, right? Single units of thought, generally speaking, you're only going to find one verb per unit of thought here, right? So you see here um, that each, uh, oh I'll go to the next slide here, each of these uh, propositions can be uh, shown to be linked together uh, through different logical relationships. Unfortunately, we don't have time to get into uh, exactly how those logical relationships work, but I'll just give you an example. Um, One of the ways, there's 16 different ways they could work together, one of the ways would be verse 3a and 3b. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. wither. So the logical relationship here is this is an action, uh, a tree that's planted by streams of water yields its fruit in its season and the result is that its its leaf does not wither. Um, another example would be, um, try to find an easier one. Um so this, this relationship here would be what's known as an inference. So because the, the righteous man's delight is in the law of the Lord, uh, that being the sort of ground of this sentence, uh, as a result, on his law, he meditates day and night. That's, that's coming from his delight in the Lord. Again, I recognize that that's a lot, um, but you'll see that you, what this tool helps you to do is it helps you to show how the, the passage is broken out logically, the flow of thought that the author is going through, and then as you uh, combine these logical relationships into larger groups, you actually come to see how the whole thing uh, relates together. Now, this is incredibly hard, especially when you read Paul. If you read, like, Romans 1, um, you know, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for uh, in, in it the power of God is revealed. For you know, you got all these four relationships. The whole thing is is a logical argument, and it would be next to impossible to to fully keep all of those thoughts in your mind without sort of a visual um, way of tracking it. And this is that's what this tool is doing. Okay, again, I recognize that that's a lot. You probably like it seems like somewhat interesting, but I have no idea how it works. But I bring this up more than anything to make you interested in learning more about it. Right? Uh, we, we don't have the time to get into specifics, uh, but BibleArc.com, the website related to this, offers really great courses um, that teach how this process works, and you know, it's, a, it's a very easy-to-understand um, method that they'll take you through if you're interested in going more. Um, definitely recommend this tool and in, in those courses there at Bible Arc. So, Blue Letter Bible, we've talked about that. I'm actually not going to cover that anymore. I think we've shown uh, a lot of how that can be used as a great um, lexicon or interlinear Bible. Um, the, last, the last tool in this group of tools uh, is sermon classes. Uh, sermons are classes online, right? So, uh, a good example of this would be something like DesiringGod.org. Uh, they have all of John Piper's sermons that are written out online in transcripts and are searchable. Um, so when you come to different points in the Bible uh, that are difficult to interpret, I found that searching for that particular verse on Desiring God uh, will will bring up you know either an article or a, a message um, that. John Piper or some of the other pastors there uh, have worked through on that text. And, you know, in that sense, uh, it can be a lot like a commentary, right, where you're seeing how others have dealt with this same text, um, but more in an uh, expository fashion. Obviously, uh has years of recorded sermon series uh, and ABF equipping classes uh... that you can go back to and listen to um, you know i I find it very helpful and fruitful as i'm maybe doing work around the house to listen to those things sort of uh, gaining back the time doing two things at once Um, the masters seminary uh... this is pretty incredible offers literally full seminary level courses all of the lectures of a class on youtube for free and they've got dozens of them so they've got historical theology uh, class, which traces the development of theological ideas throughout church history. Uh, They have a class on the Reformation, uh, which is a favorite of mine by Carl Truman, phenomenal historian, um, very entertaining person. Um, Or even classes on particular books of the Bible, like an 11 lecture class uh, going uh, really in-depth in the study of the book of James uh, with Dr. Douglas Moo. So I would definitely recommend going through those lectures um, and, you know, maybe getting another church member involved so that you can uh, have conversations around the content and seek to grow uh, in your understanding of those things. That brings us to our final tools for study, which are Christian and theological books. The first, most obvious answer to the question of, you know, do you have any recommendations for Christian theological books that can help me to grow is the bookstall, right? Uh, I don't know that we have a deacon of the bookstall anymore because Terry just moved on to be a pastor. We'll see what happens there. But the bookstall still exists. We've got some great resources like The Cross of Christ by John Stott, great book, uh, explores the depths of the gospel. Um, you've got John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, uh, which is a great uh, systematic theology. He actually wrote it uh you might, you might pick it up and see like 800 pa- you know, 1,600 pages and think to yourself, that's insanely large. I, I can never get to that. He actually wrote that as a basic introduction to Christianity that he expected every Christian to read. Something to think about. Um, you've got The uh, Unquenchable Flame by Michael Reeves. Great, great book uh, of the Reformation. Tells it like a story. Uh, and really lays out the central issues of the five solas of the Reformation uh, that were developing at that time. And then we've also talked about um, 40 questions for uh, interpreting the Bible by Dr. Plummer. What's his first name? Robert Plummer. Yep. Uh, again, tons of resources there. Very helpful. Uh, another resource that I would recommend, uh, Crossway has put out a series of books on biblical theology, tracing key, um, key theological themes throughout Scripture that kind of help you see the big picture of the Bible. These are called short uh, studies on biblical theology. But they can really help you to better understand how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament, You know how the Old Covenant relates to the New Covenant. There's a lot of good stuff there. Um, for additional resources, you can know, look at the back of your handout. We've got plenty of resources um, for recommended reading outside of this. And if you are still hungry for more, you know you can talk to Christian, Jacob, me, some uh, the other elders, Michael. Get some get some good recommendations from them if you're really hungry uh, to read more. So there you have it. Different tools for different occasions as you're studying Scripture. And we have access, if you think about it, we have access to so many different tools. We've got reference tools, language tools, context tools, electronic study tools, and like a ridiculous wealth of books, sermons, and classes uh, that we can all make use of. You know, God's entrusted us with all these resources, and, you know, it would do us well to, to steward those well and really put them to use in studying scripture. Any questions? love it all right well there's no other questions let me pray yeah go for it uh, Anna's having a girl yep yeah we are really excited coming April 10th is the due date but yeah we're uh we're still trying to nail down the name but thank you for asking that appreciate you being aware of that all right let's pray